So we continue in our series, Kingdom Habits of the Heart, uh, about the Beatitudes. And I, I, before I read our, the Beatitudes, our scripture this morning, I just want to remind you of what, what we're aiming for, what the goal of this series is, which is really, um, what does it mean to be, we, we think a lot about citizenship as a nation, to be a citizen. Um, there's different virtues and habits. If you become a citizen of the United States, um, from another country, you, you go through classes and there's certain civic virtues and things uh, that shape um, what it means to be an American. And what we're reflecting on here in particular is what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? And I think it's really important to recognize that citizenship is not just a sort of inner spiritual posture that sort of, you know, just describes the inner life, but actually profoundly to be a kingdom citizen, to have a kingdom habits of the heart, is to be reshaped as a citizen of any nation and reflecting on how that, that puts us in relationship to the world around us. And so this morning our, we're reflecting on the fourth beatitude. Blessed are the meek, or I'm sorry, um, chapter, uh, verse 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But again, it's important for us to hear the whole sermon, the whole, or at least the whole first part of this in its context. So, here, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand, and it gives light to all in the home. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you... um, shine the light of your Holy Spirit, the light of illumination upon our hearts and minds this morning, our imaginations. Give us a picture of what righteousness is and what it means to be those who hunger and long for it in our lives. And we pray that you would already begin to satisfy that that longing and desire and thirst for righteousness, even as we hear your word, even as we reflect. So meet us, Lord. We are so in need of righteousness. And so we pray, fill us up this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many of you know that I like to cook. And cooking is a a craft to which I have devoted myself for 20 years plus. 
And as a craftsman, I have goals when it comes to feeding people. And one of those goals is to introduce people to foods they've never tried, that's one goal, and also to get them to eat foods that they think that they would never like, or they've tried in the past and have not liked. And most of the time, my biggest challenge is around vegetables, certain kinds of vegetables like Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, collard greens, and beets, things that people describe as tasting like dirt. Um, I love to try to be able to get people to eat these and actually like them, and I've had moderate success over the course of many decades now of, of cooking for people. But most recently, I, by accident, I, I made dinner for a friend, my friend Jim, and I managed to get him to eat yellow squash. He didn't know that he was eating yellow squash in the moment, um, but after he had finished everything on his plate, and he seemed to like it, he's like, what was that yellow thing in that dish? And I said, well, that's yellow squash. To which he said, in 70 years of my life, I have not let yellow squash come between one foot within the distance of my mouth. Now, I thought, when, right? I got Jim to eat yellow squash. He didn't even know it, and he, he would have... Uh, now, he wasn't saying he was going to eat more yellow squash, but the fact that I got him to eat it was, I think, an accomplishment. Appetites and taste buds are difficult things for us to, to predict or control or to understand. Um, we seem to like what we like, right? Um, but unfortunately, too many of the foods that we really um, are really not good for us, and the foods that we should crave that really are good for us are ones we don't desire. Nobody has to cultivate a taste for chocolate chip cookies, but unless you're a rabbit, nobody is born liking kale. Nobody, I'm sorry. But I, as in one of my convictions as a chef or as a, as a cook, is that taste buds are malleable, they're controlled, you can change them over time and train them, and you can cultivate an appetite for different foods, healthier foods. Now, I think this is true of our spiritual and um, cravings and appetites as well. Spiritual appetites reflect our bodily desires in many ways, but and some of the worst things about our bodily desires, right? So we, we don't naturally crave God in the right ways. We don't naturally crave righteousness. Often we hunger and thirst for what would be the equivalent of spiritual fast food and drink with little desire for the substance, the spiritual stuff that really causes us to grow and to flourish. And, and this isn't just an accident of biology and experience and what you grew up eating, but, but it really is a part of our sinful human nature, right? That our fallen nature makes it such that the natural person doesn't naturally desire God, doesn't naturally desire righteousness. And I think this is helpful context for us to keep in mind when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The major issue that this beatitude raises for us has to do with the nature and character of our spiritual appetites. Kingdom of God people. Kingdom of God people are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You could call it, again, it's one of the habits of the heart. It's just a longing and a thirst and a desire and a craving for righteousness. 
We often associate different foods with different ethnic groups, right? Um, different nationalities are known by their dishes, right? So think of pasta in Italy or sushi in Japan or tacos in Mexico. The, there's a way that every, every nationality, every ethnic group and nation has a specific food or cuisine which reflects its own identity of who it is. And righteousness, the longing for righteousness, the hunger and thirst for righteousness is one of the marks of the people of God, of kingdom of God people, and how we're known in the world. And so this morning, just two questions I want to reflect on with this, this beatitude. First is, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? And second, how is righteousness satisfied in us? What is righteousness? This is really where the majority of my time we'll spend this morning, because it's actually a question, um, the category of righteousness is one that we, we don't understand very well, even if you grew up in the church. So what does Jesus mean here by righteousness? Again, I think this is the, the, the part of this beatitude that's hardest to understand, from our vantage point at least. We all have, I think, a generalized understanding of what it means to be righteous as a person. Right? We think of rule following, those who follow the rules, those, it's kind of like holiness or um, behavior that God approves of. But again, it's, righteousness is a word that doesn't do a lot of work for us in our particular context. It, it doesn't have a lot of positive content or currency. But when you look at the Bible, there's actually no higher compliment that God can make of a human being than that he or she is a righteous man or a righteous woman. But if somebody were to just call you righteous, so you know, you're a righteous person, you're probably not going to take it as a compliment initially, right? Because the only way we hear righteous is self-righteous. And then maybe if a Christian said it to you and you have a little context, you're like, yeah, but it's not something you're like, yeah, I'm righteous. Or, you know, like it's not a word, again, that, that does a lot of work for us. We're, in fact, we're actually kind of suspicious of the category of righteousness. Surely there must be something more when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, than, than the ability, more ability to keep and follow the rules, right? And I think when we turn and ask this question, what is righteousness, the place we need to start from is the Sermon on the Mount. Because the category of righteousness, the concept of righteousness, runs from start to finish in the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, it's really a sermon about righteousness, so I, I just want to start maybe a little inductively, and just I want to read you some of the, the very explicit mentions that Jesus makes of righteousness. So Jesus says a few verses later, the very last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Righteousness, in other words, is, is something that sometimes, not always, but sometimes puts us at odds with the world around us. It is sometimes something that the world does not recognize as a good. Jesus goes on in chapter uh, 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here Jesus is saying that righteousness is necessary. It's a necessary condition for being in the kingdom of heaven. Not only that, that those often who claim to be righteous or to have the most righteousness actually don't have it at all. 
Moving on in the, in the sermon in chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Righteousness is not first and foremost for other people. We don't do it for other people. It certainly is, needs to be a character of our relationship, but it's not for other people. It's actually first and foremost directed to God. And Jesus affirms this later in, the, in chapter 6 um, about the centrality of directing our righteousness for God. He says, but seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, pursue righteousness as a first order priority in your life, above and beyond all of your other physical, natural human needs. So those are a few verses on righteousness. But how, how might we define it? What kind of a definition might we give to righteousness? Um, one scholar on the Sermon on the Mount, he puts it this way, and I think he captures really well what you know, righteousness is. He says, righteousness is whole person behavior, whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and his future kingdom, his coming kingdom. Uh, another author describes righteousness in the Bible as there's kind of three directions. There, there's an inward, there's an outward, and there's an upward, right? So in, out towards one another, and up towards God. And so righteousness is a very comprehensive concept. It spans heaven and earth. It deals with the external behaviors and it deals with our internal heart. It, it's both personal and it's social. It includes all these things. And in fact, if, one of the ways that Jesus communicates the nature of righteousness is how he talks about hypocrites. You'll, you'll remember, don't be like the hypocrites. And hypocrite in the Gospel of Matthew especially is kind of like a foil for what the truly righteous person is. Sometimes we can learn a lot about what something is by what it is not. And so Jesus talks about the hypocrites quite a bit. You know, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, who he often will call hypocrites. But what Jesus means by hypocrisy is not quite how we understand it today. When we think of what a hypocrite is, a hypocrite is a person in which there is, they say one thing and they do another, right? And so there's the gap between what they say and what they do. And this is hypocrisy. But that's not actually what Jesus has in mind when he talks about hypocrites. According to Jesus, to be a hypocrite is not a gap between simply what you say and what you do. It's actually what you say and do and what the intentions of your heart are. The gap is actually between what I say and what I do and actually what, how I process the world from the inside. The, it's the inner reality of the heart. It's very possible to look and to say everything right and still be a hypocrite. Jesus says, you have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Even if you never lift a finger in another person, even if you never verbally express out loud disdain with another person, it is possible to be guilty of murder in your heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It is possible to become an adulterer without ever committing the act of adultery, simply through the imagination, right? See, that what true righteousness is, is as an inside-out reality. And I think the reality is this, is that it, righteousness, as Jesus is calling us to, has to characterize the innermost, intimate part of who we are. And I think if we're honest with one another, every single day, even on our very best day, all of us are struggling not to be hypocrites. Because very rarely do our hearts always think and feel and act and want to do the right thing. So this is the inward aspect of righteousness. But there's also the outward, which has to do with right relationships. Righteousness is a whole person reality, inside and outside, but it also is about right relationships. And Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount really covers the whole, the whole gamut and variety of our different moral obligations and responsibilities that we have to one another as human beings. And so if you just, uh, you know, he speaks at length about integrity in our relationships, in the community, faithfulness in marriage, caring for the poor, how to properly deal with conflict when we have dispute with one another, loving our enemies, treating others as we would have them to treat us. See, righteous, the righteous person is, is one whose life is characterized by rightness of relationship with all those around them. It is a, a day-to-day living in which there's, there's integrity, there's fairness, kindness, love, and generosity, which marks who we are as we relate to one another. And it's here that the word, the category of righteousness, outwardly understood, begins to direct us in, 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 the, in the direction of justice. To be a righteous person is to be a just person. Justice will be the fruit of one's righteousness from the inside. A society full of righteous people will be a just society. And to yearn for righteousness is to yearn for justice as well. And in Hebrew, the words for justice and righteousness are distinct from one another, but they always go together. They're always popping up in the same place. If Psalm 33 says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is as full of his, of his unfailing love. And in the Greek, actually, righteousness and justice are distinguishable words, but they're actually both from the same root word, um, such that they're even more closely tied together. See, there's no justice without righteousness, and there's no righteousness without justice, and there's no knowing the love of God in the world without righteousness and justice. And I think this is a, just an important point to reflect on when it comes to conversations in the church um, and debates in the church today around social justice. It is a serious mistake to think that the Bible does not have a category for social justice, that somehow social justice isn't a biblical category, because it is. But it is a serious mistake, equally a serious mistake, to try and think about social justice without at the same time talking about righteousness. And most conversations about social justice in the culture and broadly never talks about righteousness. But every concept of justice has whether it's articulated or not, an understanding of righteousness, however thin or narrow in the background. Righteousness is the positive content of justice. Justice tends to be generally a negative concept, right? 
Justice is about addressing wrongs, things that need to be set right. When we talk about pursuing justice, we're always talking about how we set something right that is wrong. But what are we setting it right to? What true justice seeks to restore to the world is righteousness. That's why in the Bible they always go together, righteousness and justice. Righteousness is a positive vision of true human flourishing. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is a vision of righteousness for, for the people of God as embodied in the world. It is a vision of justice and righteousness. And I think it's fair to say that the biblical vision of righteousness and justice is far more holistic and comprehensive and integrated than any of the particular partisan versions of justice that is popular today. To be a righteous person is to have an integrated, holistic understanding of what it means to be a human person that lives rightly, that loves God, that loves others faithfully. It includes the inward, it includes the outward, but it also includes the upward. And actually, one of the greatest uh, presentations of, the righteous, of righteousness in the Bible comes from Ezekiel 18. And Ezekiel holds together all three of these elements of the inward, the outward, and the upward. Hear what Ezekiel says. This is chapter 18. He says, if a righteous man, if, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, he doesn't defile his neighbor's wife, he does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, this man is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. The righteous man, and again, think of all that, that, that uh, Ezekiel is, God is saying to Ezekiel, right? The righteous man, he doesn't, he's not an idolater. He has right worship. He doesn't offer his heart to idols or take them in. He cares deeply for the poor. He's, he's faithful sexually to his wife. He has good business practices. He doesn't take advantage of others. He stands against injustice in society. You see, it's all these things of personal piety and right worship and personal integrity and right social practice. All these things together, the vertical and the horizontal, the personal and the social, all of them come together to make a righteous person. <clears throat> righteous and that the moral integrity of our personal lives, the inner, the, the, the most invisible part of us, is just as important for the cause of justice as caring about social issues such as poverty and racism. It understands, righteousness understands that you cannot claim to be a righteous before God and yet neglect matters of justice in society. And again, it's so important, I think, to recognize that the Bible, again and again, just cuts across all of our partisan categories for thinking and imagination. The Bible refused to divide things that our world is always dividing apart. But, but the last piece of righteousness that's so important, that is at the very center of righteousness, 
is the idea of right worship. It's the, it's the upward. Biblical righteousness comprehends the inward, the outward, but the upward as well. The righteous man or woman does not take idols into his or her heart. I think this is probably the cat, this is why righteousness isn't really a usable category for us in our culture because it's just so theological. <laughs> it's hard to disassociate from a spiritual theological reality. Righteousness has God at the center. And I think our various uh, versions of righteousness and justice on the right and on the left struggle to really, they, we want justice and righteousness but without God. And we might even use God language all the time to sort of stamp our agendas, but very rarely is there a sense that God is necessary. Jesus instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount about this righteousness that is directed upward. And think about how much instruction he gives us around prayer, about going into our closet and praying, or, or even gives us the words to pray because the root of righteousness in our lives has to do with the quality and character of our relationship with God. It has to do with that relationship and the health of that. And the problem with the Pharisees, the reason they were hypocrites, is they, they had a lot of great deeds and they had a lot of great words, and yet they did not have God. There was an absence of God. The Pharisees are really the first secularists. They sought to live out, you know, many great moral commands and yet do it without the Lord. There is no righteousness, there is no justice in society and in our lives without God. And this means to hunger and to thirst for righteousness is deep down to hunger and thirst for God in our lives. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger for God. Now, with every beatitude, there's a rub. There's a rub. There's something that's very countercultural something that doesn't make sense in terms of our natural ways of thinking about the world. And I think that in this beatitude, the rub, the rub is this. It is only for those people in the world who have a sense of their own lack of righteousness that will ever be satisfied with righteousness. It is only those people in the world who have a deep sense of their own lack of righteousness that will ever be satisfied with righteousness. See, to hunger and to thirst for something means that you don't fully possess it, that you don't have all that you need. And I think that's very under, important to understand because you know, if you're listening to what I'm saying about righteousness in terms of the inner reality especially, but also the outer reality, you can easily feel pretty overwhelmed. And I hope actually you do. I think that's a really important part of desiring righteousness is realizing how little we have of it. And if we never think about righteousness, we'll never have a sense that we lack it. That is a positive function of the law of God in our lives as we examine our lives in the light of it is it shows us our neediness. And keep in mind um, that all these beatitudes, they fit together. They, 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 uh, they build on one another. And so the person who's poor in spirit is a person who senses the deep absence of righteousness in their life, in their inner life. The person who mourns is a person who mourns the ways in which they sin and lack righteousness. They, the person who mourns is a person that, that laments the injustice 
and lack of righteousness in the world about. The person who is meek has the sense of how much they need righteousness to to engage the world with gentleness and not to use and abuse their power for their own protection. See, the paradox of the kingdom habit of the heart is that it is precisely in the hungering for righteousness that righteousness comes to be experienced. And what Jesus says here is, is blessed, what he blesses here is not righteousness. He doesn't say blessed are the righteous. That, that is, he doesn't need to say that. Everybody knows that the truly righteous people are blessed. But what he says is blessed he, are those who hunger and thirst. He blesses the hungering and the thirsting. But the satisfaction of our cravings for righteousness is, in other words, connected to the craving itself. But again, craving righteousness does not require some inner feat of the soul or spiritual appetite like learning to love kale, right? I mean, some people, when they, you know, when you imagine trying to like, you know, some food or vegetable and it just pushes you away, you're just like, oh, it's just so much work. But the hunger and craving for righteousness doesn't require that. It's just a simple need of my lack of it in my life and in a real way sort of stirs up my desire for it. See, what distinguishes Christians from the world is not their sense of moral superiority. This is so important. What distinguishes Christians from the world is not their moral superiority, not their, their, their sense that somehow they're better from the rest of the world, the more righteous, but rather it is the awareness and the sense of their own moral inferiority. And by that I mean the fact that they lack righteousness, the fact that they are so needy morally and spiritually for something that is beyond them. See, that is the mark of the kingdom people of God. And the more we wrestle with this truth, the more we hunger and thirst for God, the more our desire for God deepens and the more God meets us in our hunger. The more we come to depend upon his grace and mercy. Friends, remember that righteousness deep down is impossible without God. You cannot get more righteousness without getting more God. The more God you get, the more righteousness you get. Matthew records a conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist about righteousness. And this comes as Jesus goes to John to be baptized. And he's coming to John, and John says, no, 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 wait, stop, stop, stop. You, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. John says, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus responds to him. He says, let it be so, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Remember that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism uh, of, of renewal. And here you have Jesus coming, who is the truly righteous man, the one without sin. And so it's natural that John would say, why? Why are you coming for baptism? And yet Jesus says, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness which is a bit of a mysterious statement about what does he mean about fulfilling all righteousness. But in his baptism, 
In John's baptism, what Jesus is doing is he is identifying, he is becoming into solidarity with you and I as sinners. He is, in a sense, being baptized into our sinful condition and embracing all the consequences of unrighteousness in his own life. And of course, we know that baptism of the going down and the coming up is a symbol of what will happen to Jesus when he goes to the cross and he dies and is buried, but then is raised on the third day. How is it that he fulfills all righteousness? It is because in his atoning death and resurrection, he is able to accomplish righteousness for our sake, a righteousness which we lacked. And we, uh, there is this mysterious exchange we call sometimes the, the wonderful exchange where Jesus takes our garments of filthiness, of uncleanness, of sin, and we take, as Isaiah said, we're clothed with robes of righteousness. Remember that, what Isaiah describes in chapter 61 of the, of the beautiful garments that the people of God will be covered with. And that's what Jesus did. We take his garment all the beauty and the jewels and the righteousness, and he takes our filthy ones. He was the lamb who took away the sin of the world. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray you give us a vision of righteousness that you keep before us the full picture of that, which is a picture of human flourishing, true human flourishing, according to your word, not according to ours. Father, we, we are so miserably absent in our lives of righteousness and of justice, and we, we, long, we long for you. We long to, to have inner, inner righteousness. We long to not have the gap between what we say and do and what we feel and think. We, we long to see for there not to be a gap between what is true justice and righteousness in the world and in our relationships. And so we long and thirst for you, Lord, and we ask that you would satisfy us, satisfy us in our hearts and satisfy us in, our, in, in the world we live in, in our relationships and bring justice. We give you thanks for Jesus who fulfilled all righteousness by his death and his resurrection. And we cling to him as our Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen.